What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Richard Wiles, the executive director of the Center for Climate Integrity, the website climateintegrity.org, the Twitter handle Climate Costs, C-O-S-T-S. And uh, Richard, this uh, remarkable admission by this ExxonMobil lobbyist, just uh, did we aggressively fight against some of the science? Uh, yes. Did we join some of these shadowy groups to work against some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. But we were looking out for our investments, our shareholders. Tell me about this. Well, yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. This is just another example of Exxon, you know, lying about their, uh, you know, what they're really doing. I mean, this is just another example of the fact that they've, they've known that their products were going to cause climate change for 40 years. They've been masterminding this deception campaign for many decades, multi-hundred million dollar campaign. And now they got caught on tape basically saying, oh, yeah, you know, this whole thing about us supporting a carbon tax. Well, we're just doing that because we know it won't pass, you know. And mm. did, we, did we lie? Yeah, we lied a little bit. You know, did we pay for front groups, yeah, to distort the science? Yeah, we did that, but it's not illegal. So, yeah, I mean, it's just outed them for what many have been saying they've been doing all along and what the basis of about 25 different lawsuits against the company for doing exactly that, lying about their role in causing climate change. And it seems to be having an impact. We had a caller call up and say, well, let me tell you about this YouTube channel where they say that, you know, it was just as hot back in the 1930s as it is now. And it was, you know, quack, 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 which is the, you know, one of the many BS lines that Exxon has been funding these front groups. And by the way, they can do it with tax deductible money. You and I are paying for this, right? When they're funding nonprofits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they it's, take advantage of all the tax loopholes. They're not dumb. So, <laughs> they're so, really good at what they do. Yeah, so this, this guy has been a lobbyist on Capitol Hill. His name is Keith McCoy. He's been a lobbyist there for eight years, if the information I have is correct. And one of the points that he made in this leaked video is that he and ExxonMobil have and have had for some time 11 U.S. senators in their back pockets. Uh, who are these people, and how did Exxon get them in their back pocket? It, it was a, I guess it was a bipartisan group of, you know, 11 senators. It was, of course, Senator Manchin and a bunch of other, of the usual suspects. Yeah, I, I, I have the list here pocket. right in front of me. I'll just read it real quickly and let you riff on that, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, Shelley Moore Capito, Joe Manchin, now they both represent West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, Steve Daines, Chris Coons, Mark Kelly, which surprises me, and Marco Rubio. So what do we make of this? Well, I mean, here's the thing. They've been funding a disinformation campaign and lying about climate change for 40 years. And they've set up the, you know, the, the public uh, to basically believe what they're saying, right? So, you know, there's a lot of people in those states represented by those senators that, uh, you know, are, are going to present a real problem for those senators, right? Because Exxon has teed it up that way. Exxon, Coke, Chevron, it's the whole cabal, right? Yeah. So they have manipulated 
the, the mind of the American public to such a degree that, you know, even if some of those senators would like to do the right thing, uh, it's it's really tough because of the 40 years of disinformation. You know, and the other thing is all the obvious answers, you know, it's money, right? It's campaign contributions. I mean, right. that's, we all know about that. But it's, it's like the major strategy. Uh, we're talking with Richard Wiles, the executive director of the Center for Climate Integrity. And you know, I, 15 years ago, uh, I start, we, you know, we've been doing the show for 18 years or thereabouts. And, and, and 15 years ago, I used to have Mark Morano on and debate climate with him because it seemed like there was a debate at that point in time. And we later learned that Mark was, you know, well-funded by these people, shall we say, at the very least. And, right. uh, but, but they were actually saying, oh, no, you know, plants love carbon dioxide. We're actually producing something that's good for agriculture. And, uh, you know, uh, the earth goes through seasonal variations. And what about the little, uh, the little ice age in the 18 and the 1600s and, and all this kind of BS? You know, and occasionally that gets echoed back to us, like the caller that I had. But more often than not, the message is quite different now. I, I recall when, when the uh, governor of Washington State, which I, I'm in Portland, Oregon here, and so we are in the uh, Vancouver, Washington media market, and so we see the ads from Washington State. And I remember, you know, when the governor proposed a, a very modest carbon tax that was going to cycle back to, uh, you know, uh, people who use fossil fuel, you know, drivers and things like that. It basically wasn't going to cost Washingtonians anything, um, and it would start in slightly incentivizing businesses across the state to move away from carbon. Uh, it had like over 70% approval rating. And then the fossil fuel industry came in and launched this just, you know, carpet bomb. I mean, this is like, you know, napalm in Vietnam. Uh, just you, you, you couldn't watch TV for 15 minutes mm -hmm. without seeing an mm -hmm. ad, you know, from one of these guys talking. But they weren't talking anymore about oh, this is not a problem because there's no climate change. Instead, they were saying, well, you know, we agree that uh, we need to do something about the climate and about carbon, but we don't want to destroy the economy to get there. I mean, they've, they've, they've changed their pitch, and I'm guessing most of these senators are using these new and improved talking points. Yeah, or they're a victim of the campaigns you just described, right? You know, yes. So you got... Right. That's the thing. Like, As these guys are really good at what they do. Right. They'll go into those states and just make it really tough for people to do the right thing. I mean, we think they should step up and do the right thing. Uh, but, you know, the other way to think about it, though, the, there's these companies are being sued in 25 different places for their lies. Right. For the fact that they lied to the public. And, and now they have about their role in climate change. And now, you know, taxpayers are forced to, uh, you know, pay for all of the adaptation measures, all the damage, all of the, you know, all the costs of adapting to climate change are falling on the taxpayers. And what we think people ought to say is like, hey, wait a minute, um, you know, and this would work for any of these senators. Look, um, these guys knowingly caused this problem. They lied about it for 30 years. They're still lying. Look at this videotape, right? Uh, you can't trust them at all. They're not good faith partners here in the climate solutions process. Uh, but at a minimum, they ought to just pay for the damages, right? Let's just we can set aside the blame, but we all know that, you know, climate change is caused by fossil fuels. And just like tobacco, just like opioids, just like all these products where the manufacturers know that they're causing massive harm and lie about it, uh, you know, oil and gas is no different. They have to pay for the damages. That, I think, is a way to talk about this issue that can cut through to a, you know, a much broader base of voters in those states. And, you know, that's what we try to do, and that's what we think these, these lawsuits can do, is to reframe the way people think about climate change as an issue, not that they caused by driving to the store or whatever the hell it is, or not one that's going to cost them jobs, or uh, not even one that's really going to bring them a job, but one that was caused by lying corporations uh, who are lying to this day, who can't be trusted, and need to pay for the damage that they knowingly caused and are going to continue to cause. It's just a simple proposition. You know, you make something that's going to cause harm, you pay for the damages. It's as simple as that. Um, and, you know, we'd like to see, we think that's what the real, uh, the way to break through in these places where Exxon is in there 
So uh, is this know, entirely a let's fight it in the federal courts strategy? Because, you know, Trump really stacked the federal courts, as we saw in these Supreme Court decisions today. Right. I doubt they're not going to be court. Absolutely any... not federal courts. Okay, state so courts. is, is there... The battle is here the... is to be in state court. In state but courts. The, the point I guess I'm making for these senators is that the narrative behind those lawsuits, which need to be in state court, just like opioids, just like tobacco, where the manufacturers knew and lied, right. same with oil and gas, uh, it's the narrative in those suits that needs to become the way we think about climate change, right? That's, that's what we think can, can change, can make it, make it a hell of a lot harder for Exxon to go in and buy votes. Right? So how many lawsuits, so, so you said there's 25 lawsuits against ExxonMobil. If, if people want to learn more about this, I'm assuming climateintegrity.org, you've got that information on your website? Yep, yep. or pay up climate polluters is pay, another one. Pay up climate polluters dot what? Yeah. Dot .org. Yeah. .org. Pay up climate yeah. polluters. I love it. Richard yeah, Wiles, yeah. the executive director of the Center for Climate Integrity. Climateintegrity.org is the website. Richard, thanks so much for dropping by and keep up the great work. Yep, thanks a lot. Yeah, and uh, I will uh, uh, just, let me just run through that list. And thank you, Richard. Uh, uh, Shelley Moore Capito, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, Steve Daines, Chris Coons, Mark Kello and Mark Kelly, and Marco Rubio. If any of them represent you, this is the Tom Hartman program. You might want to give them a call or reach out to them on Twitter and say, "Hey, is it true what ExxonMobil's lobbyist says that they own you?" Hi, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from Rebooting the American Dream, from the introduction. It's titled Back to the Future. On April 14th, 1789, George Washington was out walking through the fields at Mount Vernon, his home in Virginia, when Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, rode up on horseback. Thompson had a letter for Washington from the President Pro Tem of the new constitutionally created United States Senate, telling Washington that he'd just been elected president. And the inauguration was set for April 30th in the nation's capital, New York City. This created two problems for George Washington. The first was saying goodbye to his 82-year-old mother, which the 57-year-old Washington did that night. She gave him her blessing and told him it was the last time he'd see her alive as she was gravely ill. And indeed, she died before he returned from New York. The second problem was finding a suit of clothes made in the United States of America. For that, he sent a courier to his old friend and fellow general from the American Revolutionary War, Henry Knox. Washington couldn't find a suit made in America because in the years prior to the American Revolution, the British East India Company, whose tea was thrown into the Boston Harbor by outraged colonists after the Tea Act of 1773 gave the world's largest transnational corporation a giant tax break, but the British East India Tea Company controlled the manufacture and the transportation of a whole range of goods, including fine clothing. Cotton and wool could be grown and sheared in the colonies, but it had to be sent to England to be turned into clothing. This was a routine policy for England, and it's why until India achieved its independence in 1947, Mahatma Gandhi, who was assassinated a year later, sat at his spinning wheel for his lectures and daily spun clothing in his own home. It was, like his salt march, a protest against the colonial practices of England and an entreaty to his fellow Indians to make their own clothes to gain independence from British companies and institutions, even though making their own clothes or making their own salt was against British law. Fortunately for George Washington, an American clothing company had been established on April 28, 1783 in Hartford, Connecticut, by a man named Daniel Hinsdale. And it produced high-quality woolen and cotton clothing, as well as items made from imported silk. It was to Hinsdale's company that Knox turned, and he helped Washington get, in time for his inauguration two weeks later, a nice, but not excessively elegant, brown, American-made suit. He wore British black later for the celebration and the most famous painting, but he was sworn in wearing an American-made suit. When Washington became president in 1789, most of America's personal and industrial products of any significance were manufactured in England or in other British colonies. Washington asked his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, what could be done about that, and Hamilton came up with an 11-point plan to foster American manufacturing which he presented to Congress in 1791. By 1793, most of its points had either been made into law by Congress or formulated into policy by either President Washington or the various states, 
which put our country on a path of developing its industrial base and generating the largest source of federal revenue for more than 100 years. Those strategic proposals built the greatest industrial powerhouse the world had ever seen. And after more than 200 successful years, Alexander Hamilton's program was only abandoned during the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and remained abandoned to this day. Modern-day China, however, implemented most of Hamilton's plan uh, just in the 1990s and has brought about a remarkable transformation of its nation in a single generation. Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers is a primary inspiration for this book. It was part of a larger work titled Alexander Hamilton's Report on the Subject of Manufacturers Made in His Capacity as Secretary of the Treasury. It's the official title. And then I, I list Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers. And I'll share just the headlines of this. He starts out by saying, a full view now having been taken to the inducements to the promotion of manufacturers in the United States. In other words, why we should do this. Accompanied with an examination of the principal objections, which are commonly urged in opposition. This was Jefferson's objection that he didn't want America to be a manufacturing nation. He wanted us to be an agricultural nation. Hamilton says, it is proper in the next place to consider the means by which it may be affected. So here he says, in order to, for a, to a better judgment of the means proper to be presented to the United States, it will be of use to advert to those which have been employed with success in other countries. Now, there was are stealing this idea from England. It was called the Tudor Plan when King Henry VII came up with it. So number one, protecting duties, import taxes, now called tariffs, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of domestic ones intended to be encouraged. So number one, raise the cost of imported goods. Number two, prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. On some things that we think it's really important to make in America, make the duties, the, the tariffs, so high that nobody would want to import them. So there'll be a strong domestic manufacturing presence. Three, prohibitions on the exportation of materials of manufacture. Why provide raw materials to other countries, like we're doing right now to China, to make stuff to sell back to us when we can simply make it here, manufacture it here? Number four, pecuniary bounties. This is one, one of the most efficacious means of encouraging manufacturers, basically you know, subsidizing growing and new nascent industries. So that's just up to number four. There are 11 points. The rest of it's all in the book, Rebooting the American Dream. And you can find it online. Welcome back. There's just so much flying around in the news that, you know, we can talk about any dimension of any of it that you would like to talk about or whatever may be on your mind. Vic in Johnson Valley, California. Hey, Vic, what's up? I love your show, Tom. What about, how about uh, Anything Goes Summer? You used to have that. Yeah, but, but we, anyway, may, we may end up there. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, I was listening to one of those experts down in Florida, and he said sometimes ocean spray can seep through the concrete and deteriorate it. And I went, no, that's not. And then I got to thinking, you know, they're using foreign cement and foreign steel. It could deteriorate. I don't think it's that, Vic. Uh, I think it's that it's not sealed. I mean, you know, one well, of the things that, you that, do well, in that kind of an environment when you build with concrete is you seal it. You paint it really, really well. And if they haven't maintained that building in 40 years, surprise, surprise. Well, that's partially true, Tom. There's, there's a thing called Portland cement, and the reason it's called Portland cement is because it sets up underwater. And it's a lot more expensive than just your run-of-the-mill or foreign cement. Hmm. And if you use Portland cement to build... You don't have to worry about sea. Oh, wasn't that what happened anyway. with, what was it, the uh, offshore drilling rig that went kaflui down in the Gulf of Mexico, and that they had used the cheap cement in, you know, on the outside of the pipe to seal that pipe when they should have used the, the, the more expensive cement that was resistant? Right. I'm not, I don't know anything yeah. about that, but... Okay. Deep but, water you know, if the contractor is going to put in thousands of yards of concrete, he might go for a $40 yard as opposed to an $80 yard Portland cement. So that's the difference. And I in think price. every one of those buildings down there should be cored and found out, find out what kind of concrete or cement is in the concrete. Yeah, excellent point. Anyway. Excellent point. Thank you, Vic. That's a good one. James in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, just looking at the uh, management of the Supreme Court and the way things worked out and came down to it, just reflecting on uh, Mitch McConnell, McConnell's role 
in in all this in the past many years, and it, it's appearing to me like he is winning a kind of old time the Civil War on behalf of the, uh, the Confederacy or what you might want to call the oligarchy today by maintaining a peon class mm-hmm. we haven't had time to get past propaganda for the last 40 years we're all working two jobs and three jobs and and uh, it's all on behalf of the oligarchs or yeah. or maybe you want to compare here's, them to the plantation owners well here's what i think is happening james there have been two competing narratives since the founding of our country about how a country should be run the narrative that preceded America was you can't trust the average person, the serfs and the rabble, they don't know what they're doing, they're easily influenced. If you let everyone vote, you have what's called mob rule, and mob rule eventually will destroy a country because the people will just loot the treasury and, you know, quack, quack, quack. And so what you've got to have is a ruling class, an expert ruling class. And who better to be the ruling class than the people, you know, who better to figure out how to run a government than people who have figured out how to run a company and made a billion dollars. So oligarchy is the most stable, effective, predictable, safe, long-term form of government. That's one line of thought. That's the line of thought that ultimately even John Adams kind of bought into, but, you know, was advocated by a few people even at the founding of the Republic. The other line of thought is that you know, we're all wired for democracy. Democracy is is in our soul, that most of nature is democratic, small d democratic, and that if you allow the maximum number of people to participate and vote, over time what will average out is the very best outcome for society, and so we should have democracy. We now have six members of the Supreme Court who believe that oligarchy is more important than democracy. We now have an entire Republican Party and a small minority, a small but sizable minority in the Democratic Party. The, the, you know, the, the, the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Sinemas of the world who believe that oligarchy is preferable to democracy. And then, of course, you've got all the captains of industry and the right-wing billionaires. To the credit of the billionaire class, I have to say, you know, there's a, there's, there are some who get it, you know, the, the, the Warren Buffetts of the world who get that democracy is actually a good thing. But this is the debate that's being played out, and America is sliding into oligarchy very, very rapidly. And oligarchies tend not to last. They tend to flip into fascism within a generation, almost always. And that's the great danger here. James, i got to run, but thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. That instability of oligarchy is the piece that all of these advocates for oligarchy continuously miss. They are not students of history. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
pick up some of your phone calls. And Paul in Benton, Pennsylvania, you wanted to talk about concrete and Portland cement. Uh, thank, uh, thank you for uh, calling with an expert opinion, I think. Uh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, I just wanted to say I'm a 37-year member of uh, Local 300 uh, Plasters and Cement Masons in uh, Northern California. And um, what your previous caller was talking about, Portland cement, um, it's he, you know he's you know he's partially right, but he's part you know he's he's wrong too because Portland cement is uh, you know that's the kind of cement you know you go down Home Depot you could buy it it's in all forms of concrete and I think where he's confused is Portland cement is an ingredient in concrete concrete is composed of sand aggregate and Portland cement. And the way you mix those and the different proportions, that's what gives you your, your concrete, like in a sidewalk or a, a building structure or anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, you could add chemicals into that, which will make it set faster, make it set slower. Um, you know, we've, uh, I've used hydraulic cement, uh, which sets up really fast. It sets up underwater. I've used those in repairing dams and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you could put chemicals in it. For example, we did a um, nuclear medicine facility where the concrete walls were like six feet thick. That stuff had like 18 different chemicals added to it. So, you know, it's like, you know, hy hydraulic cement could be, could be strong depending on where it's used and what chemicals it has added in it. Right. But it's all Portland cement-based. Okay, and the longer... So so, Paul, the longer but, you let that concrete sit and cure, the stronger it's going to be. Right, I got that. So, the pre but the the reason for his call, and, the, and basically the premise of his call, was he was speculating that possibly the reason that this building down in Florida collapsed, um, the uh, Champlain Towers South building, was because the contractor had used cheap cement rather than expensive cement when it was initially built. Uh, uh, as a professional cement guy for 37 years, does that make sense to you, Paul? Um, you know, it depends on the, who designed the mix. I mean, maybe, maybe the mix wasn't, you know, uh, maybe that mix might have been current at that time or whatever, but how, how old is the building? Like 40 years old? Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah, it, it wasn't built to withstand, uh, you know, maybe it deteriorated. We don't even know what happened yet. Yeah, but. obviously we don't. And was, and was I correct in, in assuming that one of the things that you do with cement, in, particularly in an environment like right on the seacoast where you're lashed with salt water, which is corrosive, is you paint it to seal it? Yeah, they do have different ways of treating, you know, the outside of it, like with different types of sealers mm -hmm. and stuff. But another thing, too, is is uh, because, like, I was in San Francisco, which is right in the Bay Area, so we're, you know, we have salt air all over the place. And the rebar that goes into those, those things, like all our rebar that we use on bridges and stuff, all that rebar is coated. It's electro-coated with, um, you know, this type of coating to where it doesn't corrode. Hmm. And um, same thing with the tie wire. The tie wire that you tie the rebar with is a different wire. It's not just the regular steel wire that you'd normally use. It's mm -hmm. a different wire that doesn't rust, and the, and the wire actually has a coating on it. Huh. Interesting. Well, learn something every day. Paul, thank you for the uh, expert information. I, I, I appreciate it. Good hearing from you. Lisa in Austin, Texas, right? Lisa? Do I, do I... Actually, um, actually up for a hood, Tom. Okay. So what's up, Lisa? So I live right next to Fort Hood. I'm LD on your chat room. I love your chatters. I love your moderators. They're the best. Thank you, Lisa. And I wanted to call and tell you a happy story of Juneteenth. And okay. I'm a little white girl. I'm military. <laughs> yeah. And I went to Hallettsville, which... Actually, it's right outside of Houston, and really from there, clear to, let's say, I don't know, Colorado mm -hmm. is trap country, right? And Greg Abbott signed his law for guns to be open carry, right. and we had our grandson's graduation in Hallettsville. We were very nervous, but we went. And it was the most wonderful event ever. 
we got to meet with my grandson. I got to hug people. I'm vaccinated. It was beyond great. And I really hope we can move forward. And I know you're helping to do that. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. So, so a nice Juneteenth story. Lisa, thank you very much for sharing that. That's, that was sweet. Julie in Posen, Michigan. Am I saying that right, Julie? I've never been to Posen. Yes, it's northern Michigan, right okay. up at the top of the... Yeah. Um, listen, I wanted to talk about the oligarchs you've been talking about take, trying to take over the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, they're taking over the whole world. They're all together in this. You betcha. Yeah, I mean they're everywhere. One of the leaders of the gang is the is the Murdoch family. You know they run large chunks of media uh, in all three major English-speaking countries: Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. Yeah, I mean, and you can see the same symptoms that are happening here, like Germany. The Nazis are really coming on strong now. Yep. And their excuse was because, well, you know, they let so many of the people from Syria and all these people, you know, in, and they said, well, they were the troublemakers, so now we gotta, you know. Get these people out of here, you right, know? Right. But I'll tell you what, I believe most of those troublemakers were really the Nazis. They yeah. were blaming it on them. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, this is happening all over the world. It's not just the U.S. You're absolutely right, Julie. So, you know, this is what's going on in France with Marine Le Pen and her movement. It's what's going on in Germany with AFD. I don't know if it's Alles für Deutschland or whatever it is, but maybe it's a different German word that starts with an A. That's the first word of it, but it's basically... You know, the, the Germany First Party, which is uh, not quite the reinvention of the Nazis, but, you know, it's getting, it, they're moving in that direction, shall we say. And it's what Modi is doing in India. It's what uh, Bolsonaro is doing in Brazil. And it's what's happening in the Philippines with Duterte. It's what's happening in Turkey with Erdogan, although he had, you know, that military coup attempt that was his excuse. And the same thing with al-Sisi in Egypt. You know, they, they get an excuse and then, boom, off they go to the races. And they're always... Even the openly military dictators like al-Sisi are always subsidized, supported, and backstopped by their local oligarchs. And, um, you know, spot on. Very well said. Julie, thank you for the call. Daryl in Seattle. Hey, Daryl, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, listening to your rant on Ayn Rand, mm -hmm. and I told your caller last week that uh, I'll, I'll bring this up in a second. point. I was touring Alaska with a magic show in Miss Teenage Alaska, and uh, her mother was worked for Joe McCarthy for a number of years, and she, that's the only reason she talked to me, being uh, her a Republican, myself being a long-haired Democrat, uh, that she told me this whole story about Ayn Rand coming into Joe McCarthy's office trying to get close to him, and her ego that you've talked about many times, and I rejoice in that because I dislike her so much, that she invited McCarthy and the secretary up to her farm in northern New York, and McCarthy wouldn't waste time with her, but she went up, and she had a whole bunch of call geese, those five-foot geese that'll peck you through the pants and hurt you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and her husband was diminutive, and it was it's like it's a very visual Tom you know she's got the stick and she's got these five foot geese quack 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 and uh, her husband's trailing way behind and he's about a head shorter than her I thought you'd enjoy that story they they wouldn't have her back in the office after a while and I wanted to say Tom that so wait a minute uh, Ayn Rand was too much of a sociopathic egomaniac for Joe McCarthy yes well, she came around. <laughs> That's the bottom she line came around a lot, Tom. She came around with her big fat ego, wow. her Russian accent, and mm -hmm. uh, pushy. And when you said that she, this guy was a prototype for John Galt, was it John Galt? In, no, it was in, for another character, but you the know, other guy, okay. Dwayne Hickman, yeah. I guess, was the. Okay. I, as I recall, yeah. was the but wasn't killer. it John Galt in Fountainhead? Yeah, John Galt was the guy in Atlas Shrugged. He was the oh, Atlas Shrugged. You know, okay, Galt's, so, so Tom. I thought you'd get that. And I, I just think that she said that just to be screwing with people. She was such an anti-human individual. Yeah. When she gave that interview to a radio or a news media. It's to Morally Safer she, on CBS in, in 1963, oh, it's there, as huh? I recall. Yeah, you can, you can still yeah, see it on YouTube. <laughs> don't, don't you think she might have embellished it? I do. Well, you know, it's possible. I mean, you know, she was, uh, you know, Ayn Rand was one of these, it's all about me kind of people. You know, it's. Yeah, uh, there you, know. you go. Yeah, Daryl, I got to run. I'm sorry, but uh, because we're hitting a break. We'll be right back.
Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Good times on the radio and TV. (laughs) We have had some very, very interesting callers over the years. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner, a memoir. This is from chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime. The cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30th, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. The morning headline was, Hitler called to president, That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions, and both times there had been solemn declarations. Never again. Each time, never again, had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again this appeasement was formally renounced and again and again it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment. Just so today. Then as now one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then as now it became apparent that their patience knew no bounds. At midday the headline said Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about five o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity informed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. For about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler, Reich's Chancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. Even with the Nazis, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but that would only make them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm That would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? Misguided ignoramuses, for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. 
No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day, this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so and relied on that with far too much confidence. So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population in the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved, then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. Welcome back. Robert in Port Orchard, Washington. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? Thanks for Hi. watching us on Free Speech. Yeah, I've got a story about uh, Medicare. My wife was in the hospital two different times this last year, mm -hmm. and uh, we got the bills, and we're, we're on Medicare and have a, uh, the insurance. And uh, after everything was said and done, I did the math to find out what percentage each hospital paid of what was turned in and what was paid by the insurance and me. Mm -hmm. And it came out, one was 18.2%, the other was 18.3%. That sounds very fishy to me and not a coincidence. Uh, I, I, I just think there's something that's going on there. Here's the scam that the hospitals right run. Whatever. You, you didn't end up with a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. That's not your complaint. What you're saying is that what Medicare and your Medigap policy covered for the for the, was only about eighteen percent of what the hospital initially billed. Is that correct? No. After after everyone after Medicare made their decision to to take money away from it, which they normally do, mm -hmm. and the insurance company paid their part, right? And I paid my part, right? Um, it, it, if you do the math on it, the hospitals, each one of them, accepted just a little over eighteen percent of what they actually turned in, right? The total bill. So, so the reason why the hospitals do this is so that they can screw uninsured people. Um, in other words, they'll say, okay, we know that our cost to take an x-ray of somebody is 100 bucks, um, and we know that the insurance companies will pay us $125, but we're going to list our price for an x-ray at $800. So if somebody who's, uh, you know, some wealthy person from a foreign country uh, breaks their leg and shows up at the hospital without insurance, they're going to pay the 800 bucks. Or if some poor uninsured person shows up and needs an x-ray through the ER because of a law that was passed back during the, during the Reagan administration, actually, was when they passed this law requiring ERs to not turn away people, then the hospital can bill the, the federal government for that $800 um, uh, reimbursement, even though the person doesn't have Medicare or, or hospitalization, if it's run through the ER. That's the game they're playing. If, if, if I'm correctly understanding what you're describing, Robert. Yeah, that, that sounds like uh, an explanation for the game. Another thing is, I pay the premiums on the supplemental, mm -hmm. and almost bill for bill, I end up paying some sometimes as little as two cents more, but it's always more than what the insurance company pays. Yeah. Well, you know, insurance companies have to make a living. That's why they're insurance companies. Uh, that's why they have the word company at the end. Um, it, it, this is another reason why we need to reinvent Medicare and get rid of that 20% hole in Medicare that, uh, you know, is, uh, was, was put there at the demand and insistence of conservatives. And by the way, a lot of more Democrats back, you know, when LBJ was passing Medicare, they were Southern Democrats. Um, who were opposed to Medicare because they were afraid that black people would get benefits. And if that sounds outrageous, it truly is. I documented in my book that's coming out in a couple of months, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. This is the only reason or the principal reason why America does not have 
a national health care system is is because, uh, you know, racist, white, largely southern uh, politicians for uh, well over a century. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt proposed the first program back in 1904, back in what was it, 1903 or 1904. Um, and, and then Harry Truman tried it and then John Kennedy tried it and then Lyndon Johnson finally got Medicare. But Robert, I got to run. But thank you for the call. Fascinating. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. over here, Alvin in Greeley, Colorado. Hey, Alvin, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, Tom. I wanted to ask a question about expanding the Supreme Court. Assuming we could get all 50 Senate Democrats to go for it, how would Congress accomplish that? Do they have to pass a law? Yes. What do they got to do? Uh, the, the United States Congress, under Article 3, Section 2 of the, of the Constitution, has the right to regulate the Supreme Court. And what that means is that Congress establishes the budget for the Supreme Court, Con Congress maintains the building in which the Supreme Court operates, and Congress decides how many members are on the Supreme Court. Uh, this, the, the number of members on the Supreme Court has been changed multiple times. Um, when John Adams was leaving office, uh, you know, he reduced the number of members on the Supreme Court so that, you know, to basically screw incoming Thomas Jefferson. When Jefferson became president, he expanded the number of members on the Supreme Court. When, when uh, Andrew Johnson was, was president after Lincoln was assassinated, um, he w there was an opening on the Supreme Court and he was going to fill it with a, with a pro-slavery guy. And Congress met and they reduced the number of members of the Supreme Court. And then after he left office and Ulysses Grant came into office, they expanded the number of Supreme Court back up again. Uh, it hasn't been done in the 20th century. Uh, you know, it hasn't been done since the late 19th century, but, but uh, we could do it again. There's no, there's no, you know, it just, and it can be done with a simple majority in the House and the Senate. Nice. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, thank you, Alvin. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, Ed in Belfair, Washington. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning, Tom. Well, I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court. It's completely turned into a corporate court for the Republicans, the lazy party. Yeah. And uh, they want the, the states to have their own, make their own laws and have their own rights. So they rule in favor of Arizona. California says dark money can't be hidden anymore. They rule against California. I, it looks like hypocrisy to me. I don't quite understand. Can anybody explain that to me? This is a form of government called oligarchy. An oligarchy is where, you know, a democracy is where demos, the people, run the country. An oligarchy is where the oligarchs, uh, I, I forget the original Latin or Greek word, but it's olig something, uh, where the oligarchs run the country. And, you know, the oligarchs, the right-wing billionaires, funded 
the Federalist Society and other groups, and there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, the, the Judicial Crisis Network is another one. That you, you've got these right-wing billionaires funding, and they're out there running ads. And, you know, we really need Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. And Justice Kavanaugh is being unfair, you know, this kind of stuff. And, and these are symptoms of a democracy in decline. And it's in decline because it's under assault by right-wing billionaires who are doing that assault because they don't want to pay their fair share of taxes. That's what it all comes down to. It all comes down to greed. And they don't want their businesses to be regulated. They want them to be more profitable. So they don't want them to have to pay for the cost of cleaning up their poisons or, or cleaning up their smokestacks. Or, you know, I, I just there's a whole spectrum of things that they would really rather not have to do. And so what they do is they get, you know, they buy politicians. I just read a list of 11 politicians who are apparently owned by ExxonMobil. But they also buy judges, including Supreme Court judges. And that's where we're at. Ed, thanks a lot thank for the call. Tom. Yeah, I got to run. But uh, thank you for the call. You know, anything that's on your mind, give us a shout. We'll be right back. For the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword for this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear. He's talking about the 1930s, when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run, and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real live cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers across the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, and Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. 
We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it. And lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, said our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because, like the other clouds, moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there, right in front of us, was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. The book, All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography, the foreword by Tom Hartman. Catherine in San Francisco. Hey, Catherine, Canada Day? Canada, yes. In Canada, there's a current hashtag that is called hashtag cancel Canada Day. And maybe we can use this time to reflect on what it means to be a colonial settler in North America, in all of North America, that is Canada and the United States. So maybe we should look at truth reconciliation, and acknowledging a country's role in the genocide as more important than fireworks parades and flag waving. And I say this in light of the recent news of what's happening, the uncovering of unmarked graves at residential Indian schools yep. across Canada. And, and wait until they start looking at the ones in the United States. There are hundreds of those kinds of schools in the United States, and I'm guessing that fairly soon we're going to start seeing the same kinds of investigations. So is the Cancel Canada Day hashtag that's trending, Catherine, is that specifically in the context that you presented, or is it uh, for some other reason? So it is in the context of truth, reconciliation, and acknowledging a country's role in genocide. That's great. Truth and Reconciliation and, uh, and Anti-Genocide Day. I like that. Catherine, thank you for the call. Jordan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jordan, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call, Tom. I wanted to submit that uh, while most people or that senators may start renaming their bills that the GOP or Republicans have blocked your right to this, such as health care, and then the bill number, so Senate Bill 101. So Republicans have blocked your right to voting, Senate Bill 102. Republicans have blocked your right to, that way when you go home to your constituent, you can say, why did you block my right to voting with Senate Bill 102? And it really puts the, that GOP senator in an awkward position. Is there any adverse to just really sticking it to these people who don't want to participate in the democratic process here? And I'll take your response off air. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Jordan. You know, it's not going to happen, I can tell you, because so many members of the Democratic Party, you know, live in this continuous hope. I mean, they're being played for suckers, but they live in this continuous hope that the Republicans are going to do the right thing when the Republicans are just, you know, totally sold out to the, to these uh, giant corporations. So Tamara in Joplin, Missouri. Hey, Tamara, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to call in about an article I read in the Baltimore Sun on June 29th. 
titled Florida Needs a Broad Investigation of Concrete Buildings. And he writes, the use of beach sand in concrete most likely ended in the 80s, but maybe later. Florida needs to thoroughly investigation of concrete buildings built prior to 1990. And he goes on to say that using beach sand contains salt, which is detrimental to concrete, and the sugar produces faulty concrete and structures resulting in earlier deterioration and eventual collapse. So they probably used what I read in another article was that when they dug the the foundation out to put in the well to put in the parking garage, which is like a basement, that's the sand they used for their cement. Oh geez. And and that's full of which salt. Full of salt water. Yeah. Yeah. Which ate well, three bar yeah, which ain't, in the concrete. Right. Well, time will tell. I mean, you know, time will tell. But uh, and, and I, I suspect that this is one of those stories that is not going to stay buried. But, you know, welcome to the wonderful world of deferred maintenance. That's that's America increasingly. Tom in Chicago. Tom, we have 30 seconds to the end of the hour. What's up? Right. Just the irritation that our network news is saying things like President Biden failed to meet his deadline for the vaccination, but they don't mention the fact that it has been countered by the negatives on Fox News and the specific individuals like Tucker Carlson, etc. They don't mention that. They yeah. just say Excellent point. Biden failed. Excellent point. I, yeah, it, it, the reporting is grim, and it shouldn't be. I mean, Biden has done yeoman's work on this pandemic. He really and truly has. So thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 